0: Welcome to episode 233 of the Actual Astronomy podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers, so love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the uh, stars. So, Shane, we had we had uh, mentioned we were interested in doing some more deep dives. Had heard from a few people that uh, they'd like to hear them. Um, you know, we're always happy to do these. And then uh, uh, Clint, uh, who I've been chatting to about, uh, he's recently purchased a hash 100 millimeter. Um, was the first to write in, voting for Scorpius.
1: Yeah, great suggestion. It's prominent right now, and. Um more prominent for Southern uh, or observers further South than you and I, but we still have uh, an opportunity to observe some of the stuff there. And I think it's a great one to talk about.
0: Yeah. And then very shortly after that, we received one from uh, Jim who, uh, who wrote us about um, uh, doing deep dives in general. And I was uh, yeah kind of blown away by his, uh, his email uh, and suggestions there. Do you mind if I just uh, read his email to us? Sure. All right. So Jim Wright's greetings, Chris and Shane. I've listened to your observations from Grasslands podcast. And I have some suggestions for some deep dives episodes. Uh here's a list of those deep dives you've already done, along with the months, uh the year those constellations will be reasonably well placed for observing. Um, this list is those prominent constellations that haven't yet been deep dived, um, also with the best months for their viewing. So I was so blown away by this email.
1: Yeah, I was. I'm super thankful Um, for a little while I was, I was tracking like our, you know, episode number and the title of the episode, just so we had a, like kind of a quick reference if we wanted to go back and see what we've done. And then I just kind of lost the momentum there and I stopped tracking it. So, so to have this where we can like do a control F, you know, to find, you know, keywords or whatever is super
0: handy. Yeah. Yeah, no that is that is super good. And yeah, I remember you were tracking them for a while and and we can kind of go through because we keep all the all the notes in uh in a bit of a compendium there, but uh yeah, it uh it was so handy just to get these these two lists there, the the ones that we've completed and the ones that we didn't. I feel like we we've got to give Jim some sort of uh producer credits now every time we do a deep dive. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So uh, Jim goes on to say, if I could make a suggestion, it would be to work through by season. Um, excellent suggestion. Um, if I could only pick one constellation, it would have to be Sagittarius. And then he goes on to say, between Sagittarius and Scorpius, there is so much going on, and their arrival low in the southwest is a welcome harbinger of the late summer observing season, um, when the warm, languid nights are, are getting longer, and the cold nights of winter are still far away. These days, Sagittarius is my favorite constellation. And so, yeah, so he mentioned both Sagittarius and Scorpius um, with Sagittarius uh, taking uh, precedent in in his list, I think, because um, we had done uh, some Scorpius uh, deep dive um, in the past. But I thought, you know, I looked at it and I didn't we didn't cover some of the stuff that that I wanted to chat on. And, uh, and so considering that both Clint and, uh, Jim had mentioned Scorpius, I thought, huh, maybe we should just, uh, hit Scorpius again, since it is timely. And, uh, I've been observing a lot in Scorpius recently.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great suggestion. So I'm excited for this one.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's see. So, so Jim does talk a little bit about, he makes a recommendation here for DEET as well and mm-hmm. non-DEET uh, insect repellents. So we're having a lot of um, mosquitoes here and he talks about the harmful impacts um, of, of DEET and other uh, chemical insecticides on, uh, on you know, your, your eyepiece um, plastic or anything else that you're working with. So typically what I do, Shane, I don't know how you handle it, but but I take like a rag or something like that, and I put it in my hat, and I kind of, I kind of put it on me. But I don't put it on my hands where I'm going to contact um, pieces. That's difficult to do. I'm not sure how you handled uh, handled mosquito repellent. I know you you've uh, used some of those. Um, I don't know what they are, but they're like a CO2 cartridge that uh, that repels mosquitoes. Do you want to just mention that briefly?
1: Yeah. So, so I do kind of a multi-pronged approach. Uh, Number one is I always try to cover myself up. So even on a warm night, I'll try to wear long sleeves, uh, pants, you know, maybe lighter material if it's a warmer night, but Mm -hmm. you know, it helps me stay warm, but it also helps keep the mosquitoes away. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if I'm wearing uh, like a toque um, I'll spray that sometimes with uh, uh, mosquito repellent far, far away from, you know, any of my gear. Um, but what I use most often is a, a Thermocell, um, and that's the brand or the, you know, what the, what the unit is called. And the Thermocell has like a, a catalytic burner. It runs off a of butane and it has a odorless smokeless pad, mostly smokeless anyway, um, that, uh, will just sort of slowly burn, I guess, or it heats up and it emits some mosquito repelling stuff into the air. And it usually creates, I think they say about a 20, like 20 square foot zone. It sort of sets up, um, and keeps mosquitoes away. Um, and it does a really good job. Now the, the times where it doesn't is if like there, there, there's times where the, there's just so many mosquitoes that it overwhelms you. And uh, you know, at those times, the thermocell doesn't seem very effective. But other yeah. than that, it it does, and and I quite like it.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'm just looking here. I'm looking this up, and uh, and and uh, he had made the recommendation of uh, something, and I guess it's out of Canada, but I hadn't really heard this uh, much of this before. Called Picka Pickera Din Din. Yeah,
1: yeah, something like that.
0: And then he had it spelled two different ways, but actually see it spelled two different ways, Icaridin. And maybe it's a very similar um, product. It's it's maybe like, uh, you know, the generic product version of it. But it also looks really inexpensive. It's $8.99 on Amazon anyway for 150 mils of uh, the Icaridin. Icarid and it's deed free, it's all natural, blah, blah. I've seen some of them mix it with. Uh, uh, they mix it with like eucalyptus or something like that. So yeah, that mm-hmm. makes me uh, pretty excited. And it, its uh, claim to fame is that, that not only does it repel mosquitoes as much, it's non toxic to uh, humans and pets, and then um, it doesn't uh, impact plastics at yeah. all. So uh, yeah, I think I gotta gotta maybe try to give this uh, give this a shot. So yeah, yeah, we'd have to try that out. Bugs are bad this year, so I it.
1: Yeah yeah the the Thermacell uses a different active ingredient it's it's lethryns el- or something like that and um it's a synthetic compound but it it mirrors or or is the same as a compound that's naturally found in certain flowers that repel mosquitoes oh yeah um so the toxicity is supposed to be you know not nearly any or not anywhere near what DEET is like um yeah. so I don't know how it is around plastics. I should do a little bit of research on that, I suppose. But
0: yeah, sounds. I mean, I've been around it, and like sometimes some of these chemicals can bother me a little bit too. Um, Deep doesn't, um, and and neither does the thermocell. So I always have to try a little bit. So I'll have to have to see if if this uh, this one bothers me. It sounds like it's totally natural, so it should be fine. Um, Eucalyptus, I find really strong. Other than that, uh, it's fine. It doesn't bother me. So those are some interesting uh, options there, I think for fighting, um, uh, the, uh, the mosquitoes and other maybe biting insects of the night.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's always nice to have some options there because there's been some nights where the mosquitoes are so bad that I can't observe. Like they just make it impossible, um, because of, you know, they're flying in and around your face, but then, you know, biting the heck out of you, which is not much fun.
0: I've had them so thick I can't even see the stars. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of biting insects, Shane. Yeah. Hey, we're going to talk about scorpions, which I know is an arachnid. So, um, yeah, have you ever seen a scorpion in real life?
1: Yes, I have.
0: Oh, yeah, where did you see that?
1: Um, well, just like in uh there's a museum I- uh, exhibit here that had like um snakes of the plains and, and there were some scorpions as well that we mm. had that were indigenous to Saskatchewan. So it's kind of interesting.
0: Cool. I've never seen the Saskatchewan scorpion, but when I was sleeping in the basement of a wine press in Italy, I did see a scorpion. Um, yeah, it was uncomfortable. Let me put it mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. So the scorpion constellation, the constellation Scorpius um, it's one of those few constellations, which really does seem to match up. Like strangely enough, like you think of a scorpion is, mm-hmm. is uh, a fairly unique, um, pattern. Um, but Scorpius, the scorpion, as far as that star pattern goes, Shane, I, I think that that is a, uh, is a pretty good match. How about you?
1: Yeah. Well, in particular, like the distinctive feature to me of a scorpion is that tail, you know, yeah. it kind of yeah. curls up and it's quite, it's quite prominent in the constellation
0: yeah exactly so that curling uh, tail and then uh, you have now it used to have two sets of claws um now it's just one because uh libra was made out of the uh, the other claw. but sort of if you if you combine that i mean boy it it certainly does uh look like a scorpion uh, at least to me so what uh what what's your favorite thing to look at when when you look at scorpius or, or what do you think of when you think of scorpius
1: um I think M4 is probably the most popular thing in Scorpius or at least that's the one that jumps out for me um when I think of Scorpius. Um it's a uh, just taking a look here. It's a uh, it's fairly decent size um globular cluster uh yeah just uh, right right near Antares. And then of course Antares is actually maybe maybe I should start there, you know, and yeah, it's more more famous. You know, named stars in the sky. Yeah, it's bright. It, it's noticeably orange. I think even to you know the naked eye. Yeah, and it's a very, it's a fairly challenging double star to split. And what's interesting about Antares as a double is the companion. Uh, most people report seeing like a green color associated yeah. with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of neat. And. I've never split that, uh, my second night. So when I was in grasslands a few weeks ago on night two, I was going to attempt splitting and but then night two was cloudy. So I didn't have a, a chance, but how about you? What, uh, what sort of stands out for you in Scorpius?
0: Well, yeah, I kind of, I kind of have my list broken down into easy and, and challenging uh, things. So M M four, of course, like mm-hmm. you find Scorpius, um, and then, you know, of course antare's sticks out um, it's due south um on these sort of uh, late june nights and and into july it just kind of sits there because <clears throat> kind of like we we're seeing last episode as as the nights begin to get longer here next week um of course the uh the the sky is is darker a little bit earlier and it's darker at almost about the same rate as the constellations are making their uh, progression uh of, you know through the, the, the Seasonal progression from uh, east to west. Uh, so you know, really, it just kind of seems to to hang there um, for for the month of July. And uh, you know, when you find Antares, just to the right or just west of Antares uh, is that Messier four globular uh, cluster. And uh, yeah, it's it's just an amazing um, cluster to look at because it's really large and extended. I, I don't know what the arc minutes are of it, but uh, you know, it's it's a really big globular cluster, like pretty shocking when I was uh, looking at it, even at, uh, you know, 25 power and then 40 power in my five and a half inch telescope a couple of weeks back. Uh, it's huge. And you are beginning to resolve it, even in just uh, like a small four or five inch telescope. And uh, and you can start to see all these different star chains that are kind of meandering, uh, you know, inside of, uh, of Messier 4. Mm-hmm
1: yeah, it's, it's a wonderful object as are a lot of the Messiers. Um, you know, there's, there's maybe some objects in that list that are kind of questionable in terms of, you know, prominence, but, but, uh, you know, a lot of these globulars are are really outstanding and M4 is no exception.
0: Yeah. In fact, uh, well, it was discovered by Chesaro in uh, 1745 and then catalogued by Messier in uh, 1764. Uh, and, and like you were saying, um, you know, it, it can be resolved. And it was the first globular cluster um, which people uh, were able to to resolve into individual stars. So that, that's kind of its, its claim to fame. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, like if you have a small um, telescope, uh, it, you, you can begin to get that partial resolution even uh, in that four inch range, I think.
1: Which is pretty phenomenal. Uh, you know, a lot of globulars do require some aperture to to start to see those individual stars, um, you know, which is where the, the big daubs usually come into play. Like um, when Mike and I were looking at M53 at grasslands, it was just phenomenal how that looked in his 12-inch. Um, and it was a lot less phenomenal in the 4-inch, let me tell you.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Another nearby uh, globular... Not sure If you ever looked at this one before, is uh, NGC six one four four, and it's um, just northwest of Antares. It sort of forms. Um, well, it's closer. It forms a bit of a triangle with M four and Antares and six one four four, but it's closer to Antares, and uh, it's sort of just north uh, west of it by only like about a degree or so.
1: Hmm. No, I've never looked at that one. Um, but so that's pretty easy to find. I should take a look at it.
0: Yeah, and so, well, here's sort of the caveat. From our latitude, it's uh, it's approaching 10th magnitude. I think it's like about 9.8 uh, photographic magnitude anyway. It might be a hair brighter, maybe approaching 8th magnitude visual. Um, it's a low core stellar density, uh, globular. And, uh, and although you can't see X-rays. It's it's a host of many X-rays. Now, for me, the way that I use it is, it makes a good test for conditions here at our latitude. So, if I find if I can see six one four four there through one of my small telescopes, then I know that's a really good night because I'm able to see uh, something, uh, you know, uh, around ninth magnitude for a deep sky object. Uh, only uh, maybe 15 degrees above the horizon means that uh, we're having excellent conditions uh, throughout the uh, throughout the overhead sky.
1: Yeah, no, that's good advice too. Um, it's always nice to have some uh, objects like that that you can look at and determine how good the conditions are that night, and and that can change entirely how you approach the whole observing session.
0: Yeah, and uh, sort of moving on from uh, from Antares, if we go halfway. Um, from Antares to Graphius, which is the northernmost uh, star in the claw that remains in in the uh, constellation proper. Um, If you go halfway from Antares to Graphius, then uh, you land on M80, which is the seventh magnitude uh, globular cluster there. Um, You know, sort of in that there's not much else around that area. Um, but M80 is because it has a lot of blue stragglers that are much younger than, than the cluster itself. Um, so I, I often forget to take a look at M80 when I'm up in that area. For some reason, I didn't look at it when I was scanning around there the other night. Um, not sure if you have any sort of observations of it or, or are you sort of in the same boat with me where you kind of uh, always forget to look at M80 unless you specifically put it on your list of things to take a look at.
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, You know, I I, like I've observed the Messier list in its entirety. um, And that was many, many years ago. And most of those observations were between an eight inch dob and a 12 inch dob. But I, I really have a desire to like redo the Messier list, or at least spend more time looking at the Messiers when I'm out and about, Um, you know, because they look different in, in different telescopes and different apertures. But um they're just a lot of them are really cool to to observe uh so i feel like i neglect them because i've already observed them um but you know just to refresh my memory i I want to start going back to them
0: Mm -hmm. cool yeah and m80 is nice it's a bit of a tight globular i find that i i have trouble picking it up in the binoculars unless i'm at a really dark site in the telescope though it it does pop out, but uh, I think the other night when I was scanning around, I just didn't scan in that direction because I think the five and a half inch would pick it up nicely considering uh, how well it did in the other objects I was looking at.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. That makes cool. a lot of sense.
0: If, if we keep on to Graphius though, um, is Graphius a double star? Do I recall you saying that before we, we launched uh, the recording?
1: Yeah. So, so Graphius is a really nice double star. Um, Mike and I looked at it at grasslands uh, again, a few weeks ago and and he brought it to my attention. He said, did you know Graphius is a double? And hmm. I said, no, actually I don't. And, you know, we, we observed it and it's also on uh, the RASC double star observing program list. Uh, so okay. we had Blake on last week. Um, Blake is the creator of this list. Um, so what's really interesting. So visually, Uh, Graphius is a pretty easy split, Um, but what I didn't realize at the time, and I now know, is that there's three stars in this system, not two. Um, Now, what Mike and I easily split was the A star, so that's the primary one, and the C star. Uh, So they're very colorful. Um, The C star is kind of orange. Um, the, The A star is, you know, maybe a whitish gold. Mm -hmm. but what's interesting is there's a there's a b star in this system and the a b uh separation is extremely tight like 1.1 arc second yeah um so you're really going to have to crank up the magnification to see all three and or have some aperture to support you know the attempt at this observation but um is very easy to locate and it's a three-star system so it's uh it's a great target for anybody interested in doubles and again that that a b is a a real challenge so it'll test your optics and your observing um uh, capabilities so add that to your list
0: and it, it's a pretty, I forget the magnitude on it, but it's a bright, like it's a naked eye star even from the city though, right? It, it, it's like what, like third magnitude or something? Graphius must be like 2.8 or something.
1: Um, so it looks like it's about five-ish. Oh, really? Um, yeah, 5.2 uh, is the primary, I think. Uh, it I'm not sure what the magnif. <laughs> sorry I'm just taking a look at the M1 and M2 what that represents here on this list but anyway yeah it, one magnitude rating is four nine the other one's five two so
0: oh those must be those must be for the pairs though because I just looked it up and it's 2.62 oh okay
1: yeah okay yeah, for the, so prim- then, the yeah. primaries yeah
0: yeah because yeah, just like eyeballing it I was just like not that I do stellar magnitude measurements, but I was thinking it's like 2.8. So it's saying 2.6. Yeah. Got it. So, okay, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, apparent magnitude. And then, yeah, at least the first companion is about 4.9, and then, yeah, the other one. Yeah, yeah, so that makes a little bit more sense there. Yeah, sorry about that. wasn't uh, looking to uh, put anybody on the spot.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. I. uh uh, it, it's a super cool double. So yeah, again, highly recommend that. And, and then I guess if you are in that region and you know, you, you really want to challenge, you could try to split Antares as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, did you ever see the false comet? Have you ever been uh, far enough south to see the, uh, the bottom vertebrae in the tail?
1: I, I don't think I have seen that. Um, have you seen it?
0: Yeah, I've seen it a few times. So uh, this is uh, well, the comet head is NGC 6231, and then combined with Colander 316 and Trumpler 24, which are uh, open clusters in that in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, they form sort of the the aptly named uh, False Comet, which has been. Uh, I think recognized by lots of observers over over the millennia. I know uh, G.B. Hodierna um, has an observation of it as well. And I could be misremembered, but I think Gabriel uh, Sufi, um, when he published his work in I think nine sixty four A.D., the uh, his his book of fixed stars. I think he also mentioned it.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, so it's uh, what it is is uh, a large open cluster that's uh, that's where where the tail turns so if you follow the tail down and you're at a at an observing location that's that's below about 47 degrees north latitude you can actually see the tail turn and then it it cuts across uh, just above the horizon if you're if you're you know 47 and then um it turns back to the north and ends up at uh, at shola um but where it turns, where it kind of makes that uh, that almost right angle, uh, left jog to the east, that's where NGC 6231 is. And uh, it's this beautiful uh, open cluster. And it's about uh, half a degree north of Zeta uh, Scorpii, which is that bottom star in the Stinger. And, uh, you know, that, that's a beautiful star to look at in itself. I think it's actually like it's not a triple star anything but there's like sort of three stars that make it up if i'm remembering correctly and um, this grouping of these three clusters and there's some other material there is part of a swath of uh, young bluish stars um, that are known as the scorpius obi-wan association and uh, you know uh, subsequent observers have uh, have indicated they think it looks like a false comet and i i think it does i think definitely it does look like a comet
1: Um, yeah, th- that's one I really need to observe. It's been on my list for a long time, and I've just, uh, I just need to make it a priority next time I'm out.
0: Yeah, when I when I lived in Nova Scotia, I thought that uh, I always wanted to see it, but I could never like find the right spot or conditions. Like either, you know, it's so low there at uh, you know at forty five, getting close to forty six degrees north latitude, that you really, really need a perfect horizon. Like you need to be out looking up over the ocean um, from Ontario, where I was, which was uh, about two and a half degrees further south, was just enough that. And and where we observed there was uh, was in fields, not fields like we have here, but pretty decently sized fields, and we we could see it clearing um, the horizon for a couple hours every night and uh and i was able to to observe it there on a few occasions and then when i went to hawaii of course it was 20 degrees higher than that so it was was pretty easy um to observe in uh in the binoculars um you know from the slopes of haleakala that that was uh, truly a spectacular sight
1: yeah that would be ideal from that latitude and on top of the volcano
0: yeah yeah and uh, and then after i made that observation i think it was the following year it was a year or two later i was i was uh, back visiting in nova scotia and uh and we had a beautiful series of nights i was there for about two weeks and i think out of the I was there for either two weeks or 10 days. Anyway, I got like seven or eight uh, observing nights in and, uh, you know, on a spot that was overlooking the ocean. And uh, yeah, I was able to get, I think two or three observations of 6231 um, from Nova Scotia. So it is it is possible to see it as, as far north as probably about uh, 46 degrees north latitude.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Well, that's good to know I guess that might be the cutoff.
0: Yeah. If you keep going down, And follow that stinger along the horizon and then it loops back up or if you're if you're here where we are and you can't quite do that you can see these two stars um shala and uh, Lesev, and they form the uh sort of that that stinger the actual stinger part yeah and they uh sometimes i think they're referred to as the cat's eyes not sure if you ever heard of them uh, called the cat's eyes before
1: no i don't think so um that doesn't stand out
0: no. I think they kind of look like cat's eyes, kind of looking back to you, like they kind of look like oftentimes like they're just sort of sitting over the horizon, kind of looks like something kind of peering back at you.
1: Hmm. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to look for that. Next.
0: <laughs> yeah. just east of there is the butterfly cluster, not sure, uh, Messier 6. Hmm, uh, yeah. what, do, what, do you, what do you think? I think it really looks like the butterfly. Yeah,
1: yeah, this is another one. Like you mentioned, Scorpius actually looks like a scorpion, and and this is a, a cluster where you know I think it is pretty evident. It does look like a butterfly
0: yeah and it does rise high enough and it's bright enough that it's fairly easy to see um you know even even from uh, from our from our latitude there and there's a lot of other things in in that area of the sky if you kind of go down to the southeast you land at Tolme's cluster m7 now i don't know about you but i don't think Tolme's cluster looks anything like Tolme. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah agreed <laughs>
0: There is there is a tiny little cluster there, NGC six four five three, that uh, that kind of appears caught up in M seven. Have you ever looked at that? I've looked at it once, I think. It's no, not I
1: don't think yeah. I've ever looked at that one.
0: It's it just looks like a star in most telescopes. And then if you get access to a big uh, a bigger scope and you're maybe a little bit further south. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to see this globular caught up in M7. Uh, and then there's some dark nebulae. I've looked at these. Uh, B-287 in the southern part it is within the cluster. So, like, inside the cluster itself, you can actually see this uh, this dark nebulae. It's not that large. Uh, and then B-283 uh, extends out of the north over the Milky Way because it's a really bright, rich area of sky down there. So uh, maybe I should say what these uh, B objects are uh that they can be a little bit more challenging. But uh, uh, do you know what the B objects are, Shane? Do you know what they well, stand
1: for? Isn't that the Barnard uh, kil- uh, catalog?
0: Yeah, so so it's the Barnard catalog. And do you, yeah. do you off the top of your head, and I, I don't like to be on the spot, but you're pretty good at this. Um, do you remember what kind of objects they are?
1: Yeah. Yeah. They're all dark nebulae. Um, that's, uh, you know, one of Barnard's claims to fame is, is he really, uh, I think, was, you know, paramount in cataloging the dark nebulae up there. And, and that region of the sky, you know, Scorpius and Sagittarius, because you're looking kind of into the heart of the Milky Way, uh, the dark nebulae really pops there because there's just so many stars. And, you know, when you start to see a void of stars, it, you, know, you know, you're looking at some, some dark nebula, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah. And so what he was doing in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s is he uh, uh, at first was purely visual. And then he started uh, using um, some of the early uh, astrophoto lenses to take photographs. Of the Milky Way and, and sort of running through that process for the first time. You know, now it's sort of commonplace to, to see amateurs going out and taking beautiful photographs of the Milky Way. Well, he was really uh, pretty much like the first person that, that sort of dedicated their uh, obs- observing to actually going out and trying to figure out um, what this thing was uh, that we're looking at. Now, originally, uh, people uh, like Herschel, like uh, William Herschel, and, and I think John Herschel as well, Um, they thought that perhaps these things were voids, like almost black holes and, uh, and it was Barnard who, and this, this is like a perfect example of an amateur's approach. So Bernard was really an amateur. He wasn't a trained professional astronomer. He had gone and, and, and taught some astronomy courses and was enrolled in astronomy courses, but he was really a self-taught amateur that had become a professional. And, and he was sitting out, I think it was uh, when he had the, uh, the Bruce telescope down on Mount Wilson in, uh, in around like 1905. And, And he was taking photographs and the clouds rolled in, Shane. Shocking. (laughs) Shocking. And in true style, um, Barnard simply uh, just sort of put the cap on the telescope or Put it on pause or whatever and sort of just kicked back and was just looking at the night skies these clouds were passing by and it and it occurred to him it's like sort of one of those eureka moments that often you know although they get described as eureka moments in science they they typically don't happen um, the way that we think of it but, but he really did have one and it occurred to him that perhaps these dark uh objects or these dark things that he was seeing weren't voids in the sky They were simply clouds that were unilluminated, that were simply like these clouds passing between the observer and the brighter Milky Way in the background. And then, of course, as he began to think about this, and to look at the results of his observing and his photographs, you could kind of see how some of the stars around the edges of these were actually coming through uh, that weren't uh, visible visually and and that they were reddened. And then when, of course, they did further investigation, they found that they were reddened by uh, dusting and gas and that uh, he was indeed correct. These were uh, simply uh, dust and and gas clouds that were unilluminated that are passing just between our vantage point here on Earth and these uh, Milky Way uh, uh, clouds in the background. So kind of a fascinating story behind those. Um, they can be a little bit of a challenge to see, eh?
1: Yeah, yeah, they can be for sure. Um, you know, the larger ones, um, even not necessarily larger, but if they're in a star-rich area of the sky, it becomes a lot easier. Um, but yeah, they can be challenging nonetheless. It's it's kind of a, it's just a strange object to observe uh, because we're often chasing light and now you're chasing the absence of light which is odd for us
0: <laughs> yeah I, I think though that the dark nebulae as they've come to be known um have a little bit of a bad rap because of uh, perhaps the most famous one um barnard 33 although it was discovered by wilhelmina fleming um which is the horsehead nebula mm. and that's just like like ridiculously uh faint and and fairly challenging um to see because it's it's a small dark nebulae that is superimposed on the bright nebula, which is actually a pretty faint nebula called uh, IC four three four. I think, if I'm re- remembering off the top of my head, and so that one is 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 a fairly challenging object to try to see, whereas other objects aren't as difficult. I think like Barnard um, 287, like I mentioned here, I think that one is is actually much easier than the, than the horse head. And then there's tons that are easier. If people want to start looking at these. The, the best one that I recommend, strangely enough, Barnard's um, first set sort of initials, he human by E.E. E. Barnard. And there actually is a Barnard Z, um, which is comprised of uh, Barnard, I think it's 142 and 143 up in Aquila, just off of Terra Z and Altair. And, uh, and that makes a, a great, uh, learning ground because some of those ones up, there are actually fairly easy to see. Um, and then there's some other ones that are sort of in and around the, uh, Sagittarius star cloud, but anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting off Scorpius here now.
1: But <laughs> So, well, um, yeah, I had some words, they're gone.
0: That's okay. That's okay. So if we go to the southwest, this this is a this is sort of where things get a little bit more challenging. So um, you know we've talked about some of these easier uh, objects, which are which are among my favorites that I like to visit every time I'm out in the summer. Um, but if you go southwest of Messier Seven, and you need a pretty darn good horizon at 49 degrees north to see this, but that's where I first saw it. Is is a large star cloud called NGC 6455, and in some of the atlases, it's often uh, mistaken for an open cluster. Uh, But John Herschel found it on June 7, 1837. He mentions it as a cluster partially resolved, some stars seen, stars extremely um, small, plus nebulae. And then um, it's been later noted by Dreyer that it's probably a mere enhancement of the Milky Way background. I, I think that's that's probably true and accurate. Um, however, that, that area of NGC 6455, which is a large... At least in my opinion, star cloud is uh, well visible to the unaided eye, uh, especially if you're at 49 degrees north or further south. And so when you look at M7, just kind of stand back and look or take your really wide field binoculars and pan just to the southwest of M7. You'll see this this star cloud there, which I think is is quite beautiful. And it really... um, you know, dwarfs M7 quite a bit. Uh, this star cloud is, is quite neat to see, and, and most people have never really, uh, you know, bothered to take a look at it. Hmm.
1: Well, that is interesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so going up and uh, and north, basically due north of, uh, of Shola, we have NGCs 6334 and 6357. These are the cat's paw, and the lobster nebulae. Have you ever seen these ones? The cat's paw and the lobster?
1: Yeah, cat's paw I have. I'm not sure. I don't think I've seen the lobster.
0: I find the cat's paw more challenging than the lobster. I was looking at the lobster uh, recently, um, but usually the way I run over them is that I've I've accidentally scanned too far in a hunt for M8 and Messier, M20 and 21 And then I've done this. The, the two times I've I've found them like this, I was using new instruments, most recently my comic catcher, which is five and a half inch, super fast wide field scope. And then um, years ago, I I had bought a pair of 22 by 100 binoculars. And it was the same thing I had sort of misjudged where I was pointing my new telescope and had landed on uh, these uh, sets of objects. And there's lots of other stuff in the field. And I thought, oh, this telescope isn't very good because it's really not showing M8 and M21 very well at all. And, uh, but it turns out that it's, we're actually looking at objects that are several magnitudes fainter and difficult to see.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that changes things quite a bit.
0: Yeah, it does. So yeah, anyway, so I always uh, enjoy kind of running uh, over those. So they're, they're a little bit challenging from this latitude because, um, you know, uh, they're pretty far south, you know, they're really just, uh, you know, just northwest of Shola. And, uh, you know, they're, they're further south or just a touch south of, uh, of M4 and, and we've even had a lot of just regular decent nights where M4 is not visible because the sky and the atmosphere is just too thick. Once we, we get that low down. eh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's always a challenge. Uh, you know, at this latitude is anything near the horizon. You, you know, you really do need a great night to, to observe it properly. Um, and, that's always or that's never guaranteed. You know, it's in fact, mo- more often than not, it's just not that great around that part of the sky.
0: Yeah, if you do get a good night, the cat's paws worth taking a look. It's an emission nebula, uh, has a red color in photographs um, and it originates from uh, the red coloring It originates from the ionized hydrogen particles. And uh, these stars are nearly uh, 10 times the mass of our sun. Uh, and they were only born a few million years ago, so it's a pretty new area. And uh, so the stars that you're seeing there are relatively young, and that emission uh, nebula is is where they were birthed out of. And then talking about the lobster nebula, I find the lobster nebula actually really easy to find because it's at the end of this really distinct chain of seventh magnitude stars. And then the nebula also has an open cluster uh, complex um, called Pismis uh, 24, I think. And uh, there's a lot of massive stars here. Um, you know, some of the most massive stars according to NASA um, but they don't really know why these massive stars are, are in this area and uh yeah like i said it has pismus uh 24 there near the center and it's home to these super um you know large massive stars and there's an overall blue glow uh near the inner uh region which is a result of ionized hydrogen gas um yeah so you know just just another uh, set of challenge more challenging mostly because of our latitude i think probably if you're uh if you're observing in australia or somewhere maybe these are uh, pretty easy binocular targets
1: Well, there you go. Further south you go, the better you are here.
0: Do you ever see those beautiful wide field shots of Antares, you know, where you can see like M4 and all the dust and gas that's in there? Do you ever see? Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's phenomenal
0: yeah and the often called like the row Ophiuchus um, region although Antares uh, and is in is in scorpius um you know the main uh, part of that that dust cloud is actually north in Ophiuchus. Um, but the large the larger portion of the cloud is vandenberg 107 However, surrounding Antares itself is uh, the Lens Bright Nebula or LBN 1103, which is an H2 region and it extends south by several degrees. It doesn't actually photograph very well, it shows it yellow in the photographs. And um, I had no inkling to make this observation, but uh, I was observing one of the first nights Mike has his uh, 15 by, by 50 Canon image stabilized binoculars. We, we went out on, on a night, um, uh, sort of on the first or second week of June, I wanted to see the perpetual twilight mm-hmm. and it looked like a really good night. So we thought, well, we'll go out and I can film my boots and see that once for, for a good night. And kind of once you stay up all night and watch it once, you've you've kind of seen it, but I, I had really wanted to see it. And uh, and we thought, well, we'll just kick back and do some binocular observing. I don't even think we brought telescopes with us, uh, but we did go to a really, really dark spot, like a Bortle two class site and we we're way up high on a hill about uh, 33,000 feet elevation. And uh, and yeah, as we kind of watched perpetual twilight, once we got into that really dark zone of the night around like 1230, quarter to one, um, started scanning around this area. And I picked up uh, that lens bright nebula 1103 extending south by uh, I think like three degrees south of uh, Antares. And uh, really quite surprised because I didn't know that, that was a visually uh, observable nebula.
1: <laughs> well, I'm trying to think uh yeah, I don't know if I've ever heard of uh really anybody observing that one. So, that's interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah I'd always uh, tried going for the uh Roa Nebula, which mm-hmm. is uh around those three stars of of Roa Fuycus, which is north of there, which is a blue reflection and and dark nebulae complex, and that's really tough, but uh, but I didn't see that uh, on this occasion. Uh, I did see this uh, this other nebulae. So that is possible. There is a super challenging reflection nebula. If you go north, remember we were talking about uh, Graphius earlier? Yep, yep. Just sort of in that general region and uh, and a little bit further to the north of there is New Scorpii, New Scorpii. And there's a reflection nebula called the Blue Horsehead Nebulae. And it's IC 4592. Um, it's really tough to see. And, uh, you know, it's it's really big. I can't say that I've been successful. It's one of those things where kind of sort of thought I've seen it, but I keep going after it because we talked about Barnard earlier, the discoverer of the dark nebulae, and it was Barnard who found this. And uh, I believe he was actually observing visually in six inch in a six in, uh, or six and a half inch refractor on Mount Hamilton in 1895. So he wasn't too far south. I think that's like uh, maybe like 35 or 36 degrees north latitude uh, just outside of San Francisco there. And uh, yeah, he was able to hunt that down uh, visually. And that is a tough, tough object to see. Um yeah. Have you ever even tried for that one? You've seen the photos of it, I know, but uh, have you tried even to look for it?
1: No. And, and when Mike and I were looking at Graphius at Grasslands a few weeks ago, um, you know, we were right there with a 12 inch and a four mm. inch and neither one of us noticed it. Now in the same breath, I'll say that we weren't looking for it, but you know, it certainly didn't stand out.
0: <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that that's sort of where I'm gonna gonna trail off here because uh, we'll we'll trail off from one that I've continued to hunt for, for like more than a, more than a dozen years. So mm-hmm. maybe somebody else have better luck, and I I would love to hear from. I know we have some observers uh, further south in uh, Brazil and Australia and and other uh, more southerly climates than us. Um, I'd be really excited to hear if somebody is uh, is able maybe to to hunt down IC uh, four five nine two because uh, I have not been successful, but uh, but continue. continue. Continue to try. Okay, Shane, do you have anything else to uh, add to this episode?
1: No, no. um, I talked a little bit there about a couple doubles. And, uh, uh, you know, just that Scorpius is a a, a neat constellation in terms of variety of objects. Um, You know, lots of uh, different nebulae, uh, including a lot of dark nebulae in and around there. And, you know, some interesting clusters. And, yeah, great, great constellation.
0: Yeah, well, thanks again, uh, Clint, for the suggestion, and thanks to uh, Jim for sending along the uh, the list of uh, of constellations to to deep dive into. Um, I know I started with one we we already covered a little bit before, but. You know, I've been observing it recently and I just sort of have a passion sometimes to speak, you know, what I'm, what I'm diving into and, uh, and as well, I think it was like way back, according, to, I think, according to what I remember looking at in, in Jim's notes that it was like episode 37 or something. So that's like more than two, well, maybe about two years ago or something like that. when we were talking about it.
1: Oh yeah. Cool.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks everybody for listening. We're always excited to get your observing emails to actualastronomy at gmail.com and we appreciate uh, any support people make through Patreon.
1: Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.